This morning we are in Galatians and we are continuing to go verse by verse through Galatians. We are going to pick the text up at Galatians 1.18 and we're going to study a message called Getting Acquainted with Grace. Getting Acquainted with Grace. Father, thank you for each precious person that's here this morning as we study your word and we get ready this morning to uh, end our service in taking the Lord's Supper. We are grateful for uh, reminders. We're grateful for your living word and we're grateful for a chance to come to your table this morning and to celebrate all that you've done for us to secure our salvation, to pour out your grace in our lives. Your grace is indeed amazing. And Lord, we've all carried all kinds of stuff in here this morning, but what we do know, one thing we do know is that you are faithful to pour your grace upon your people and that you will never leave nor will you forsake us. And so we pray that the way you want this to go this morning and how we would respond would bring you glory, would be led by your spirit. So we lay this time at your feet and we pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Grace is a beautiful word. It's a word in Greek called charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, pronounced charis. And the word for grace it speaks of the benevolence of God, the goodness of God. You could say grace is one of the primary expressions of God's loving kindness. And in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for grace is ken. Everybody say ken. You got to spit a little bit. Try not to spit on your neighbor. Ken. <laughs> it's C-H-E-N. And Dr. Seekins, he uh, gives us some Hebrew word pictures and he talks about grace here and he says, uh, he says grace essentially means to find favor it means to camp, set up camp with someone. It's relational. Essentially, the word to find favor or grace in the eyes of someone here in the eyes of God. Grace means simply put to find acceptance. Grace means to find acceptance. Now, if you were to step back for a moment and think about how many people in our world are doing some really silly, goofy, crazy things to find acceptance... I think you'd be amazed, right? Just in our own hearts, we realize the power of peer pressure. We realize the power of just wanting to be accepted in a community or in some peer relationships or a group of friends or to be considered, you know, in the in-group or cool or liked on social media or whatever it is. And the incredible truth about the grace of God is that you are accepted in the Beloved. If you are in Christ this morning, God accepts you just as you are because you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. Now, even though God accepts you just as you are, he doesn't want to leave you that way, amen? <laughs> so he's got a work to do in your life. And the same grace that saved you is also the grace that conforms and strengthens you. So grace is obviously applied directly to our salvation. We're saved by God's goodness, Jesus plus nothing. But then God pours his grace or strength into our life to conform us more into what we are and to what he knows we will be. And Sometimes we have a tough time accepting ourselves. Sometimes we have a tough time accepting forgiveness. Sometimes we have a tough time getting acquainted with what, with what grace actually means. I'll tell you this, uh, from my own background, coming from a, a system that, you know, was a little cloudy on what grace was, and that would be Roman Catholicism. Um, 
I didn't really understand what grace was. I didn't understand how deep grace was, how wide it was. Uh, I often felt like I had to perform for God to be accepted. And day to day, week to week, Sunday to Sunday, I kind of felt like I never quite knew where I was with God. And that's not just true in Roman Catholicism. That's also true in the evangelical church because there's many people who are confused about grace in the evangelical church. Uh, they walk in Sunday after Sunday, and frankly, there are some, some denominations in, in, in evangelicalism that are very confused about grace, and they scream and yell at people and make Christians wonder about their standing before God constantly. And one thing that I've been trying to share with you that is so powerful, if you can get your arms around this, is that you are loved and accepted right now. God loved you when you were in rebellion. He demonstrated his love for you while you were yet a sinner. Now, we all fall short, right? We all fall short oftentimes of our own expectations or the expectations of others. But this is where grace is such a beautiful reality. It's such a beautiful uh, position to enjoy, to be accepted by God. We like to say that Jesus is the face of grace. But I'll tell you, if you were to look around this room just for a moment, you're going to see faces of grace all over the room. Because each one of us are faces of grace or trophies of grace. If you're in Christ this morning, you have been transformed by grace. Move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You've passed from death to life because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing grace. That's why Newton you know, when he wrote the song, he was overwhelmed by God's goodness to him, knowing what he had been. And even after becoming a Christian, often what we fail to be. Now, the Apostle Paul has been introducing us to this idea of grace, and we're in verse 18 of our text in Galatians 1. And he starts with the word, Galatians 1.18, he says, then. This is a chronological reference, signifies chronology. Then three, three years later... And just to give you some setting, if you haven't been with us, Paul has been uh, talking to us about this incredible gospel that he received from heaven and that he began to operate in that gospel. If you look at Galatians 1.17, actually go back to 16. It was God's desire to reveal his son in me, Galatians 1.16, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, which was kind of the epicenter of the religious world, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia. This is uh, not the Arabia we know, but this would be uh, called Nabataean Arabia, would include Paul's hometown, and returned once more to Damascus. So Paul didn't go up to Jerusalem, the epicenter of religious life. He went away to Arabia, and he was preaching during this time. Then chronology we have three years later I went up you always go up to Jerusalem to become acquainted middle of 18 with Cephas that's Peter's Aramaic name and stayed with him 15 days I did not see any of the other apostles any other of the apostles except James the Lord's brother now some of you might be asking what's the point Paul simply this Paul had conducted his ministry, preached his gospel, independent of interaction or teaching or training from the apostles. 
And this is important because Paul had said that the origin of his gospel was directly from God. Remember, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus confronted Saul. Saul was going to persecute the Christian church. He felt it was his duty to destroy the church. Jesus confronted him, called him out. There are many scholars that believe that Paul was both converted and called on the road to Damascus. And during that three days, I introduced to you the concept that that's probably when Paul received much of the revelation about the gospel. And then immediately after those three days of fasting and uh, having the Lord reveal truth to him, he went out and he began to preach, independent of the apostles. And this is important because the false teachers in the Galatian churches called the Judaizers were saying, no, Paul was subservient to the apostles. And that he got his gospel from the apostles, but then he distorted it. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. I operated for three years before I ever went up to Jerusalem to meet Peter. And if you think about meeting Peter, talk about a power meeting in the first century, amen? Peter and Paul. By the way, they weren't an early rock and roll band. Peter and Paul were early pillars of the church, but both had experienced the grace of God independent of one another. We don't know if Peter even had met Paul along the way, but surely Peter had heard of what had happened to Paul. But remember, in the ancient world, there's no cell phones, there's no email, there's no texting. So in order to meet somebody, there had to be traveling. There had to be an opportunity for a face-to-face meeting. And this meeting happened three years later. We're told from the book of Acts in chapter 9 that there were many of the believers at this time that doubted the sincerity of Saul's conversion. And it was Barnabas who had to assure the apostles, write this down for your notes, Acts 9, 26-30, where this takes place. It was Barnabas, Barclay said Barnabas had the biggest heart in the church, who had to assure the apostles that Saul, who would become Paul, was legit, that his uh, conversion to Christ was authentic, because there were Christians, and talk about persecution, there were Christians that were concerned that Saul was just pretending, that he was alleging that he had become a Christian just to sneak in to early Christian meetings, find out who the leaders were, identify chief Uh, locations and people only to destroy so you can imagine there was some doubt there was some concern and it was Barnabas whose name literally means the son of encouragement who said no Saul is truly born again he has a radical testimony a radical story God's using him in amazing ways and Paul is arguing that his gospel came to him from Jesus directly not from Peter Not from James, not from John. See the word acquainted in the New American Standard. The word to become acquainted is a single Greek word called historio. H-I-S-T-O-R-E-O. Historio. Gary Habermas, who is probably one of the chief experts on the resurrection, argues that the Greek word for acquainted, historio, is best translated as an investigative reporter. And I'll let you wrestle with this. There are other Greek scholars that say the word simply just means to get to know somebody, get acquainted. But the word has nuances, historio, of investigating or gaining information as you get to know somebody. To inquire, examine, or investigate. Now you might say, well, what's the purpose of defining that word so strictly? Well, Habermas 
argues that Paul got his early information about the gospel in this meeting three years after the road to Damascus experience. And this is where 1 Corinthians 15 comes in. Let's flip back there, just a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. Many of you are familiar with this, what's been called by scholars an early creedal statement that goes all the way to the, back to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, uh, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of, in first, of first importance what I also received. Now Habermas would argue that Paul is talking about the meeting with Peter and James. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, look at the names here. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to who? To James. Now, these are names we saw in Galatians. Then to all the apostles, and then, last of all, eight, to one untimely born, Paul referencing himself, he appeared to me also. So it may well be that Paul, if you turn back to Galatians, as he visits a couple of weeks with Peter, maybe three Sabbath days, back to Galatians chapter 1, got details about Jesus' life. Now we do know that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus after the resurrection, right? This is post-resurrection. So imagine how many stories Paul was interested in hearing about from a man named Peter. Because Peter was called at the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I can imagine Paul meeting with Peter in Jerusalem with a notepad. And so, saying, tell me more, tell me more, put another pot of coffee on, tell me more. He walked on the water, and you did too. Peter's like, oh yeah. In the early days, right? And so many things to talk about. About miracles. About blind eyes being opened. Deaf ears being unstopped. People with leprosy being he healed in a, in a moment before their eyes. Uh, he would speak to demons and they would come out of people. He would hush the sea. Uh, he would feed thousands of people with miraculous provision. Peter could have gone on and on. Can you imagine the stories deep into the night? And I'm sure that both of them celebrated grace because both of them met Jesus in different ways, in different settings. And I look out at this group of people right now and you've all, those of you who are believers today, met Jesus. Uh, you know, your year would be different. Your place would be different. The setting would be different. The context would be different. The struggles would be different. But in the end, what, what do we all have in common here? We've all met grace. We've all met Jesus. And I'm sure that Peter and Paul could also talk about their failures. Paul would talk about regret in persecuting the Christian church, giving his approval to people being die, uh, dying, people being put in prison, and things like that. 
And Peter could talk about that fateful night when he was so confident that he would stand for Jesus. I'll never deny you, though everybody does, I'll die for you. And then we know what Jesus told him before the rooster crows, right? See, both men knew something about grace in their failures. And both men were used mightily by God. This is, this is an early power meeting in the church, no doubt, right? These are some of the big guns, but some of the big guns in the early church were some of the biggest failures in their own personal lives. And this gives me great encouragement. Amen? Because it tells me that God did not choose me because I was the greatest guy walking around the planet, because I had it all together after I became a Christian. No, 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 no. Far from it. God uses people who are broken, who come from broken backgrounds and struggles to become trophies of grace. And Paul and Peter are certainly two that we can look at and say, indeed, this is the case. It can take a little while to get grace, to grasp it for yourself, for others, to see it, to realize it. Saul was a trophy of grace. Peter was. James was. Do you know that James, the brother of Jesus, and by the way, Jesus did have physical brothers and sisters. James was technically the half-brother of Jesus. And as we read the Gospels, for example, in John chapter 7, that the brothers don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, there's language in the New Testament that indicates that they thought he was a little crazy. They thought maybe he had lost it a little bit, that he had a Messiah complex. Can you imagine? Come on, bro. <laughs> Get over yourself now. And, there, and I think the majority of scholars do not believe that James believed that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. That's why this connection between 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1 is so profound. Because it goes back to the earliest witnesses. You know, there are people who argue, oh, the Bible was put together in the 4th century by people who had an agenda. No, 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 no. These are the early people who were touched by saving grace in Jesus Christ. And they were persecutors and doubters. They, this was the brother of Jesus who doubted his own brother. This was a guy who tried to destroy the Christian church. This was a man who fell on his face the night before Jesus was crucified. This is the foundation of the church. Doesn't it give you hope? It does me. It's like, man, I'm in good company then. God can use a man like me. Okay, here we go. Because there's a lot of people who say to friends, well, maybe I'll go to that church when I clean up my life a little bit. Well, good luck. That's like standing outside of a shower after a mud football game and say, well, maybe I'll clean myself up a little bit before I get into the shower. No, you let the shower do its work. And sometimes what we do is we, we step away from God when we should be ste stepping in to the living waters of saving grace. If you've come here broken this morning, if you've come here with your scars and wounds and dirt, you're in good company. This is a place where people have experienced grace. The church is a trophy of His grace. Grace is hard to get, and grace enables us to get up again and again. A Christian is not perfect, but has a deep desire 
to glorify God with all of their lives, even after falling. Proverbs 24.16 says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. You know, maybe sometimes uh, you look at your Christian life and you go, well, I've fallen on my face this week, or I went back to this old habit, or I said this silly thing in this moment. Look, look we, we understand that. We all struggle with that. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to make excuses for our sin. And grace instructs us, this is Titus uh, 2, 11 and 12, grace saves, but grace, al- grace also instructs. Grace instructs us to live a godly life. So don't think just because Galatians is emphasizing grace that the Christian church teaches that people can just live however they want to because of grace. No, grace instructs us to live a godly life. But my motivation is because of the great salvation that I've been given by God. Amen? Now, in what I am writing to you, verse 20, Galatians 1, I assure you before God, this is oath language, that I am not lying. You can write down a cross-reference of Romans 9, 1, where Paul says, I'm not lying about my heart for my Jewish brethren. Paul, in oath language, says, I'm not lying about the length of time, the meeting with Peter, the seeing of James. You say, well, why why does he give an oath right here? What's the deal? Well, Paul's gospel was independent from Peter, but it was also in agreement with Peter. And the point is that God had given Paul the gospel directly. And by the way, Paul and Peter were not in opposition with each other in regard to this gospel. And neither were James and Paul. Sometimes, how many of you have studied the book of James? You read the book of James and the book of James says, Faith without works is dead. And you say, are Paul and James in disagreement here? Well, no, they had a cup of coffee together in the first century. And apparently they're okay with each other. See, James is giving a perspective of what faith should look like in terms of on a human level. See, works testify to a living faith, but they are not the foundation of a living faith. Works testify that you are genuinely a Christian, but works don't save you. They are the consequence of a living faith in the living Lord. Amen? And it is God's grace and goodness that leads me to repentance. I don't want to hurt my father. I don't want to sin against my father. I don't want to dishonor my father. Those are my highest motivations. But I do know this. When I fall on my face and I skin my knee and I hurt people sometimes around me, God's grace is sufficient. When I don't know why I'm not, I've not been healed of something or why this situation or condi- condition continues, his grace is sufficient. Paul says, then, notice the chronology, Bible students, another chronology word, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. You can write down Acts 9, verse 30. These are provinces in early Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, Roman province, a Roman province. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, the church kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. I don't know if you realize this, but in our world today there are 
so many Christians in the, in the United States, uh, people that you might be surprised at some of the names of pro athletes and actors that are committed believers in Jesus Christ. I just read something about Sir Anthony Hopkins, who's a well-known actor. I'm not sure if he's a Christian or not, but I've heard a testimony about him coming to God, moving away from alcoholism, coming to God, and he was addressing a group of 500 students or something like this, this article I just read, and he basically told the students, look, don't live for fame and fortune. He says, he says essentially, all of that is nothing. He said he was in an AA meeting, I think it was in the 70s, and a woman looked at him and said, why don't you just trust God? And he said that was a changing point in his life. Here's a phenomenal actor. He's won all kinds of awards. Anthony Hopkins, you know the name. And the man says, look, if you try to live life just for the fame and the fortune and the money and the wine and, and the women and the song and all of that, he said essentially to these students, there is nothing there nothing see what we need to realize is god has grace for all of us and when people heard the story of the persecutor turned preacher they were glorifying god paul says because of me can you imagine the guy that was the biggest threat to the church now was its chief spokesman that's exciting do you get excited when you hear other people's testimonies Testimonies are exciting. We were up at the men's retreat and we heard four different testimonies and we heard some testimonies at the marriage uh, conference that we did and it's so encouraging to hear how grace arrived in someone's life and that same grace uh, that they experienced, you've experienced and you get to celebrate it and, you and it brings glory to God. Grace brings glory to God. Works. Are people getting up and saying, oh, this is, this is what I've accomplished. Here's my resume. Would you introduce me again? Oh, this is so-and-so. This is what he's accomplished. These are his degrees. This is what he's done. He was in that and that and this and that. And that, and that, and that, and that. No, no, no. Grace brings glory to God. See, it's someone else has paid the sentence for us. Then, Galatians 2.1, some of you looked at this section and you said, Pastor Michael's got a big chunk this morning. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Let's keep going. Then, another chronological reference. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now he's got Barnabas with Barnabas, the guy with the biggest heart in the early church, and he took another man named Titus along also. For 14 years, now scholars say they're not sure if this is from Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus or from the, earth, the meeting three years later, but either way, it's a decade or more that Paul was preaching the gospel that he had been given from heaven independent of the other apostles. He was going out and preaching the gospel. And here's, what, here's what happens. No matter if you're in Corona or Cuba, if you're a Christian, you can be moving in the gospel ministry and people can be getting saved by the same message, the same power, the same God anywhere in the world. That's exciting, isn't it? And if you travel somewhere and you meet another Christian in another country, it's so exciting to meet believers in other countries. I've met them in Israel and in India and Nepal. And they smile 
kind of like a smile like we have up on the screen. And, and you just want to hug them and hold on to them because you know that we have a common grace in our lives. We know Jesus. We have the same King, the same Lord, the same Spirit. And Paul says, look, I operated. He, he has here a period of 14 years, and then he went back to Jerusalem. He says, then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again. You always go up again to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill. And Paul continues to advance the argument that he preached his gospel independent of the apostles. The Judaizers were saying he was dependent on them. Paul says, no, I'm not. Now, in the book of Acts, I want to take you to a couple of stories where you can see what happened with Peter and how Peter knew that the gospel was a gospel of grace. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 10. So there's an early guy uh, in the stories in the book of Acts named Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, non-Jew. And Peter had been summoned. He was up on a rooftop. He was praying. He fell into a trance. He saw the sheet come down from heaven. Uh, just, just to summarize a, a lengthy chapter, he was summoned by the Holy Spirit to go with certain men to preach the gospel to a man named Cornelius who uh, I think was associated with the Italian band, which was a backup band for Sinatra, just so you know. Anyway. They sang, We did it God's way. Anyway, never mind. Now, Paul, Peter was apprehensive as a Jew to enter into this Gentile dwelling. But Peter is preaching Acts 10. Check out verse 43. Of him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured upon, out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. You see, the Holy Spirit came upon Gentiles without circumcision, without baptism, in the middle of a sermon. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Without even a close or an altar call. All right, we'll dim the lights. We'll play the music now. If there's anyone here who is not, right? We're used to that. That's okay. But the Lord just did the work and they started speaking in other languages and the circumcised believers turned over to Acts 15 who were there were like, wow, <laughs> these people are saved. How can you have the Holy Spirit and not be saved? No circumcision, no baptism, no keeping of the food laws, not wearing the right stuff, not going through a full conversion into Judaism, saved by... Now check out Acts 15, verse 1. Now some men came down from Judea, Acts 15, 1, began teaching the brethren, unless you are what? Circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is related to salvation. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. This is a later time. 
Therefore, being sent uh, on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they received they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported to uh, reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, "It's necessary to circumcise them and to re- direct them to observe the law of Moses. They've got to do this extra stuff." The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles, he's talking about the house of Cornelius now, would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then James will also step up and speak. Here's the point. There is not anything to add to grace. If someone tells you, back to the book of Galatians, oh, you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh, there's much more to it. Now you've got to do this to be saved, that to be saved. Don't believe it. Because if the Gentiles heard the gospel and received the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our redemption, he's God's down payment guaranteeing our future redemption, then there's nothing to add. Once you got the Spirit, you got the Spirit. Right? The Lord lives inside of you. He's doing the work from the inside out, not from the outside in. And man-made religion says, no, you got to do it from the outside in. Clean it up. Scrub yourself. Do this. Check this box. And God says, no. You are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. We've got to get acquainted with grace. Amen? Amen. It's sufficient. Back to Galatians 2. We'll move rapidly, said the preacher. (laughs) Now, it was because, Galatians 2.2, of a revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, uh, a revealing that I went up. And there are many who believe that this was an independent revelation, just God directed Paul. But there's a revelation given by a prophet named Agabus. Write down for your notes, Acts 11.27 through 30. Agabus, uh, who some say his name means locust in Hebrew, Uh, gave a prophecy of a coming famine that would hit the Roman world. And so a collection was taken for the poor saints of Jerusalem to make sure that they were taken care of. And that's probably why Paul went. We can't be dogmatic. He says, I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, you and Galeon in Greek, which I preach among the Gentiles. 
But I did so in private, this was not the Jerusalem council we read about in Acts 15, to those who were of reputation. Now Paul's second visit, many years later, was motivated by a revelation. He submitted the gospel. See the word submitted there? That means to communicate, to declare, to set forth. He did it in private to those who were of reputation. We're going to see in verse 9, it was Peter, James, and John that are named. For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now there are many people who study the book of Galatians and say, oh, Paul submits the gospel to the pillars of the church, namely Peter, James, and John, to get their endorsement or approval. That seems not to make sense. Listen to Schreiner. How could Paul be running in vain if he knew the gospel he preached was from the Lord? Does Paul confess doubts here about the legitimacy of his gospel? Is he suggesting that he counseled in private the Jerusalem leaders because he harbored private reservations about what he preached? Did he spend the first 10 plus years in ministry in suspense, wondering if his gospel was truly given to him by God? All interpretations of this, for, of this sort should be rejected, for they contradict the whole of Paul's argument to this point. Well, then what would Paul be saying? What would be his main concern that he had been potentially running in vain? Maybe this. Maybe that all the Gentiles that he had brought to faith in Jesus, he would introduce them to Jewish brethren only to have Jewish brethren say, you don't belong here, you don't fit with us because you haven't been circumcised, which is the Abraham, sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You haven't been converted into full Judaism. You don't have our kosher diet. We're going to read about diet uh, later on in chapter 2. You don't, you don't do what we do, therefore you're not accepted by us. And Paul was concerned about the unity of the church, the acceptance of the church, and the furtherance of the gospel. God forbid, God forbid that we don't elevate peripheral issues in the church to divide us with people who worship a little different than us, come from a different culture, do things a little differently. I did a wedding for a Nigerian couple some years ago, and they had me dress in the African garb. There was Pastor Michael. Yeah. I had the, the silky thing on and the colors and the hat. And at this wedding, they took an offering for the bride and groom in the middle of the ceremony. People came up, dropped the money in, and they started dancing around the offering dish. And yeah, yeah. Now at weddings, you know, usually it's something like this. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to join in holy matches. Oh, there was none of that. It was, yeah, yeah, in the, in the middle of the church. So later on, they had invited me to the, the dinner. And, you're, you know, they have, it's amazing how they respect the pastors and stuff. And did you hear that? Anyway, never mind. And so, just kidding. That was a joke. So I walked in, in the garb, and just to let you know, I was one of just a few white folk in the room. All right? So I come walking in, and I had the garb on. And everybody in the room turned around. And they went, yeah! And I walked in, yeah! It was cool. We all love the Lord. We all have experienced the grace of God. I could put on the African garb. Now, was it my sweet spot? No! <laughs> but, verse 3. 
That was not in my notes. None of it. <laughs> Verse 3. But not even Titus, Gentile, who was with me though he was a geek, I mean a Greek. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was planned. Was compelled to be circumcised. Now, if circumcision saves, get this, Barnabas the encourager, Titus the Gentile, used mightily by God. There's a book written to Titus. Partner, co-worker of Paul. If circumcision is necessary for salvation, Titus is sitting there, and you're kind of like, living example. Titus is saved, not circumcised. This is a big meeting. Now, if you're Titus here, you're like, please, Lord, please, Lord, please. Let him, let him say circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Please, Lord. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Anyway, never mind. So, if circumcision is necessary for salvation, you've got to do something more. Well, then wouldn't the pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John, have demanded that Titus, a Gentile, be circumcised? But they didn't. One writer says, To say works are necessary evidence of salvation is not the same as saying that works are the ultimate basis of salvation. The true gospel was so opposite of what even Paul had practiced in his own life. The law is good, but the law could not make Jews holy. It only exposed their sin, and it cannot make you and me free. Now, it was because of the false brethren who sneaked in to spy out our liberty. I don't know if they snuck into the meeting or the church which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Now, there were some sham brethren, some false brothers, apparently outside the circle of the redeemed, says one writer, who snuck in and tried to bring bondage. The false brothers were stuck in bondage. This is Shriner. Like prisoners, they came to see what freedom in Christ is like. But they did not arrive as prisoners who longed to be free but as those who desire to bring others into bondage with them. Sadly, this is typical of what happens with a false gospel. There are many people in bondage today who don't know they're slaves. So they sneak in to see what Christian freedom looks like. They got flashlights, helmet, lights on their... What's going on around here? Hey, hey, take that smile off your face. This is church we're in. Can't smile in here. Whisper, whisper. We only play. When you walk in here, you must look like you just ate a banana upside down. <laughs> Helmet light. What are you doing over there? What are you eating? That's not a bologna sandwich, is it? You don't have that processed cheese on there, do you? Light. What's going on with all that? They came here to spy out our liberty. What are they doing over there? But not to know what freedom looked like, but to bring us into their bondage. Sad, isn't it? Do you know that's what major cults in our world do? They're enslaved, and they convince you that you need to be enslaved to be right with God. Join us in the jail. Come on over here, there's What? No, I'm free in Christ. No, you're not. Come in here with us. We'll tie the, we'll put the chains on you a little bit tighter so you can experience what? In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul argues that subjection to the law does not bring freedom, but enslaves. 
Requiring law for salvation does not free people from sin, but places them under the reign of sin. Reverting to the law is a yoke of slavery because human beings cannot keep the demands of the law. Hence, they groan under the law's demands, which they cannot fulfill. Some years ago, a sweet sister in Christ told me she was at a hospital with a Jehovah's Witness who had a sick child, and I think they've changed some of their rules on this, and they would not give the child a blood transfusion. And the, and the mother was in agony over the, the situation, the health of the child. And the mother had other Jehovah's Witness leaders coming in there and saying, don't give that child a blood transfusion. Why? Because they feared that the child would lose their salvation and the mother would be condemned for allowing such a thing which is a total misinterpretation of the Bible. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's not talking about blood transfusions when it mentions blood. And they put the woman in bondage and her child's life on the line for a false gospel that enslaves. Do you hear what I'm saying, folks? This is an example of what happens. But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no, no partiality. Well, those who were who are of high reputation contributed nothing to me. Those men added nothing to my message in IV. But on the contrary, seeing they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel, you can see grace in people's lives, to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised Jew effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. We were both doing the work. And they didn't want Titus to be uh, circumcised. They knew God's grace was all over the situation. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Jesus' half-brother, who became a believer, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, there you have Peter, James, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas, not the left boot of disfellowship, but the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. They said something like this, Paul, Barnabas, Titus, we love you, man. This is so awesome. God is so good. Be blessed. And they shook on it, if you will. They, they said, yes, we agree. This is the gospel, and it's for all people everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, and nation can be saved. They only asked me to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Father, thank you as we uh, have wound down this message. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. As communion now will come around and we will celebrate uh, remembrances of your grace and goodness in our lives. We know that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came down. The face of grace, we beheld his glory. I can imagine John and James and Peter sharing with Paul the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw his glory. We touched him. The Prince of Life. Maybe they took communion together. and They remembered your pierced body and shed blood. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that we're accepted in the beloved. If you don't know Jesus right now, if you're not sure you're a Christian, the Bible says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, 
that you through his poverty might become rich. You can become rich spiritually. You can be the richest man, woman on the planet. It's all about grace. Before these elements go around, if you don't know that you're saved, cry out to him, Lord Jesus, would you save me?